0: We're glad everyone is here, and, uh, and we are going to be continuing our study going through the book of Hebrews. So go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 3 if you've got a Bible with you. Well, there is a, a lookout point in, out in California, in San Francisco, that is just uh, breathtaking. Breathtaking. Uh, and it's actually closer to Muir Woods, kind of north of San Francisco, and you get to it by hiking through some redwoods and the sequoias, and then you come to an opening that's up on a hill, and it overlooks the Golden Gate Bridge, and to one side you see the ocean, and you see the bay, and you see the city, and it's just, it's a glorious view. It's, it's beautiful. It's It's breathtaking. Uh, it's, it's what you find on many postcards, and many, it's, a, it's a popular tourist spot. But that view, that glory is oftentimes missed by locals who don't stop the, and to take the time to really take in the beauty and the glory that surrounds them. I mean, cars each day, busily, they drive on the Golden Gate Bridge, more concerned about traffic and getting to work on time and all the busyness of life. And probably even more so right now, the beauty and the glory of, of it all is probably being missed by people who are living in the midst of the city. As I've heard, the city has just kind of let itself go, and there's, there's more uh, drug use and homelessness and violence there on the streets before And so right now, people in the midst of the city, they are, you know, surrounded by some of just the busyness of life and the ugliness of life and the the hard things of life, and they often miss out on the beauty and the glory that surrounds them. And you've probably done this as well. You've probably been driving in a car, uh, and you've maybe just quickly driven past something just glorious and beautiful. Uh, You know, in in Indiana, there's not many like hills or mountains, but maybe it's the sky, right? A lot of times we've got beautiful skies that that we drive past and there's a beautiful sunset or sunrise and you kind of just take a glance at it. Or maybe it's the sunlight hitting the the cornfields. Or maybe it is the hills of Brown County that you've just kind of quickly driven past and never really taken the time to consider just how glorious it is. And church, in our lives, we often do this with Jesus. Uh, We do a quick drive-by on Sunday morning, and we take a quick glance. Uh, We, maybe at Citigroup, do this as well. And maybe in our devotional time, we we give him a, a quick glance. But God's word this morning is going to exhort us to pause and to really consider him. To consider Jesus. And what that word consider means, it means to set your mind down on something or someone. It means to observe him carefully and closely. It means to sit and behold him, to take him in, to focus on him, to apply one's mind diligently to him. And this morning, we must consider Jesus. We must set our minds down on him. And church, I did, not, uh, I did not plan this out to coincide with our election this week. Uh, but God has providentially given us this word, I believe, for this week. That we might just stop and consider Jesus. Stop and consider Jesus. I do not know what this week will bring us. Uh, we might at some point feel like figuratively that we're in on the streets of San Francisco. But I'm here to tell you that there is beauty and there is glory that surrounds you. If only you would stop and consider Jesus. And this morning we're arriving at Hebrews 3 verse 1, which starts with the word, Therefore because our author is continuing his thought from the previous two chapters that Jesus is better and superior to anything and anyone else that has come before him because he is God in the flesh. He is fully God, fully man. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. He has rescued us who were all once enslaved to a fear of death. He has propitiated God's wrath. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters and adopt us into the family of God. And he lives right now to help us in our temptations and trials. Therefore, therefore, consider him. And in the original Greek, this, this call to consider him, it's, it's written in such a way that it's a command to do this right now. Like, this is a pressing issue. We must consider him right now. We cannot delay in in being obedient to to this word from the Lord. We cannot wait till things calm down to consider him more. We cannot wait till kids are a little older to consider him more. We cannot wait till our work slows down to consider him more. We cannot wait for some future event or future season of life to consider him more. This is a call to consider Jesus right now. And so as we consider him this morning, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to consider both. We're going to consider his calling. We're going to consider his superiority. And we're going to consider his house. As we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to consider his calling, consider his superiority, and consider his house. So let me pray one more time, and we'll ask for God's help. Father God, we do ask for your help. Lord, settle our minds and our hearts down in this moment and help us really consider you. Help us consider the work that you've done on our behalf and help us consider what you're doing right now as our merciful and faithful high priest. Father, I ask that I would not get in the way, God, of anything that you are trying to teach us from your word this morning. Help me make your truth plain and clear, and we ask that this would take deep root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let us first consider his calling. Hebrews 3, verse 1, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Notice first that he calls the believers holy. Holy. Consider Jesus, church. Consider that his calling on your life has now made you holy. To be holy is to be set apart. Jesus has called you to be set apart and to be set apart for a specific purpose. You have been called and you have been to be set apart to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We have been set apart to worship and to serve the one true living God. And what we learn throughout kind of this whole first chunk of our Bibles in the Old Testament is that because of indwelling sin in our hearts, holiness can only come to humanity through sacrifice. It's not something we were able to achieve on our own. It's not something that we can, like, make ourselves holy. The author of Hebrews here is not congratulating us on obtaining holiness. No, he's instead reminding us that since Christ is our priest, and since Christ has offered up himself, as chapter 2, verse 17 says, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, since he has done this, His people have now been made holy and set apart to share in something. Look at at what we share in. To share in a heavenly calling. A heavenly calling. Not an earthly calling. A heavenly calling. The fact that God has set you apart to share in a heavenly calling means that who you are and what you are to be about does not get to originate or be decided by you, but instead by the one who is calling, the one who has set you apart. You, you don't share in an earthly calling, meaning that you and the people around you don't get to decide who you are and what you are about. It's Jesus' call. He is the one that is calling you. He is the one that has set you apart. He is the one that has made you holy and, and caused you to be able to share in this heavenly calling. And when Paul wrote to the Colossians, which we preached through not too long ago, uh, he, he gives us some, a little bit more insight as to what kind of this heavenly calling is all about. Colossians 3 verse 1, we'll have it up on the screen. Those of you that were in the equip cohort, you memorized the first 17 verses, but let me remind you in case you've forgotten. Colossians 3, verse 1, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And then he goes on to explain all the things that are earthly in us that need to be put to death But then skip down to verse 12, Colossians 3, verse 12. He says, But then put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You have been called and set apart for the worship and service of God and to work out what God has worked into you to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Church, you are called to be set apart To reflect the glory of Christ to this world. This is your heavenly calling. This is your heavenly calling. You don't primarily have an earthly calling, you have a heavenly calling. Now, listen, let me clarify because a heavenly calling does not mean that we don't have our heads up in the clouds and we get to neglect all our earthly responsibilities. Okay, so you can't decline to do the dishes or take out the trash this week because you've got a heavenly calling. All right, don't don't try to pull one of those and don't pull my name or associate me with that. All right, that's not okay. There is much work to be done here on earth. There is much work here on earth that we are called to do. And we as Christians, though, as holy and set-apart ones who share in a heavenly calling, obedience to Jesus does not mean just kind of checking out on things that are going on here on earth. But instead, the things that we do on earth must be in light of our heavenly calling. They are motivated. The things that we do here on earth should be motivated and driven and guided by our heavenly calling. And so everyone, for a moment, I want want us to stop and I want us to think about this week. I want us to think about Tuesday and the rest of the week and all that will follow. I want you to think about the voices that you will be hearing from this week. And I want you to think about the voices you've been hearing from the last few months that have been calling to you. I mean, both political parties have essentially said that if the other side wins, you will die, which leaves all of us a bit unsettled. It'll either be the virus or it will be poverty and rioting, but whichever side wins, the other side is saying, right, you will all die. And so right now, right now in this moment, as we think about this week, I want everyone to take a big breath in and hold it. And out, you have a heavenly calling this week, church. You have been set apart to worship and serve God this week, church. And you share in a heavenly calling to reflect the character of your creator and savior this week. And everything we do should be motivated and driven and guided by our heavenly calling. And so please stop this week and consider Jesus and consider this heavenly calling. Well, you might be thinking, okay, yeah, Jesus is calling. Consider my heavenly calling. Sounds good. That'll be, that'll be one of the voices that I listen to this week. Maybe I've convinced you that, yeah, that should be at least one of the, uh, uh, the, the emails that I open up. That should be one of the voicemails that I give my ear to. That should be one of the podcasts or books that I will listen to or read this week. Jesus will just kind of be one of them. And here's where we need to understand his superiority and his supremacy over all other voices that we let into our lives. Because you see, the original recipients of this teaching, they had many other voices and teachers speaking to them as well. And our author throughout the book has been trying to show us that Jesus is better than all these other voices. He's better than all the prophets. He's better than all the angels and messengers that had come before him. But now he's really going to up the ante. All right? He's really up in the ante in Hebrews 3. He's going to say Jesus is better than Moses. Like Charlton Heston Moses, right? Like you have to understand and appreciate how people with a Jewish background viewed Moses. Moses was a big deal. All right? Moses was considered to be the greatest Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, God had used him to accomplish an unparalleled rescue of his people. And everything about Moses' life was really m- miraculous and put on display the power of God. Everything from his birth where he had to be, you know, put in a basket in the Nile to, to uh, not be killed and, and how that then uh, guided, uh, God guided that, that basket and he was then brought into the Egyptian palace, right? Giving us a, a picture of, of being born into slavery but then being adopted into a royal family. And then we see all throughout his life, just miracle after a miracle, from the burning bush to the plagues in Egypt to the parting of the Red Sea to bringing water out of the rock and being involved with the manna and the quail. And he was the one that God used to bring the law and the Ten Commandments. And he was the great historian who wrote our first five books of the Bible. And he spoke to God in a way that no one had ever been able to do before. Like Moses is a big deal. Moses is a big deal. But consider the superiority of Christ. Look back at Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Now first understand that this this is in no way bashing Moses. All right, this isn't demeaning Moses. Moses was faithful in all God's house. In fact, even this word servant that's used here isn't the typical word for servant that's used in the New Testament. All right, Doulos is the typical word that's used for servant throughout the New Testament, which really could be translated as slave or bondservant. But this word that's used here of Moses, it's different. It's it's a much more tender and honoring word of someone who has a position of nobility but is still under the authority of the one who appointed them. And so this isn't a bash on Moses. We should not think less of Moses after we come out of this passage of Scripture. We should not disregard the ways that God used Moses and spoke through Moses. God does not have a low view of Moses. In fact, when Moses' siblings wanted to start speaking against Moses, uh, God has some things to say about that. And we find that in Numbers 12, uh, verse 5, which we'll have up on the screen. Right? Aaron and Miriam, they're speaking against Moses. All right. Numbers 12, verse 5. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house, which is what Hebrews is quoting here. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And then we see the Lord strike Miriam with leprosy. So God is not saying, disregard Moses. No, he was a faithful servant in God's house. But his word is saying, consider the superiority of Jesus, even to Moses. The the human being that you've had the highest respect for, consider that Jesus is superior. Because look what Jesus is called in Hebrews 3. He's called the apostle and the high priest. Of our confession. Now, Jesus being called apostle is that reminding you of anything in Scripture that, like that, you've heard before of him calling, uh, uh, of Jesus being called the apostle? Anything from our study in Colossians that is kind of reminding you or triggering anything? The answer is no. No, it shouldn't. Because uh, he's never called the apostle in anywhere else except this passage of Scripture. Is anyone still with me? Are you guys here? Give me a nod. All right. Okay. All right. So this is the only place in Scripture where the, the Word calls Jesus the apostle. But, but calling him the apostle and the high priest, it paints such a glorious and superior picture of him. And so we must stop to consider this that Jesus is the apostle and he's the high priest. The word apostle means one who is sent out from another. To call Jesus the apostle is helping us understand that he was sent forth from the Father. And then to call him the high priest is to understand him as humanity's representative to God. God. And so since Jesus is God, right, we've learned this throughout uh, even Hebrews, He's the exact imprint of His nature, this means that He's the perfect apostle and He's the perfect high priest. And if He's the perfect apostle, that means that He represents God perfectly to us. And if, if He's a perfect high priest, this means He represents us perfectly to God. He's the bridge. He's the only one who could represent God perfectly to humanity and humanity perfectly to God. And he does this perfectly and faithfully. Moses couldn't do this like Jesus can do this. Jesus is better than Moses. Therefore, consider Jesus. Consider the perfect apostle and high priest. Now, most of us living in America in 2020, we probably don't have necessarily unhealthy, an unhealthy elevated view of Moses, unless you really are a, a Charlton Heston fan. Then maybe it's it's weird. Maybe it's a weird thing. So we we maybe don't ha- we maybe haven't elevated Moses like maybe they had, but we very quickly put people on pedestals. We very quickly put our pastors and celebrity teachers and people that have platforms. We put them up on pedestals and platforms that only Christ should have. And we do do this a lot with with pastors. And this is why at some point you have been disappointed with a pastor. I'm willing to bet that at some point in your life you have been disappointed with a pastor. We are a disappointing bunch. (laughs) And there's lots of different reasons that you maybe have been disappointed by a pastor. Some of them maybe are legitimate, some maybe are not. Because oftentimes you see a pastor will eventually fall short or fall off the pedestal you should have never put them on. And so I am not your apostle, and I am not your high priest. I'm not God's perfect representative to you, and I'm not your perfect representative to God. Jesus is. And so we should always take what we hear from pastors, including me, we should always take what we hear from pastors and teachers and authors and podcasters, and we should hold them up to the inspired Word of God. We must hold up their teaching to the inspired and the incarnate Word of God. God's Word is always superior to mine and to yours and to the public, public, uh, the popular public opinion of the day. God's Word is always superior. The incarnate and the inspired Word must be considered. We must put our minds down on it and observe it and be diligent with it and attentive to it. We must, always be in, we must always be considering Jesus and His Word. This is what we rally around. We rally around the Word. And so we can learn from a lot of well-known pastors and authors, but we don't elevate them and put them on this pedestal that only the Word of God should be on. Now, this is a really freeing thing, okay? And I've, I've, I feel like it's been really freeing, especially this year, uh, because... It gives us the freedom uh, to disagree with prominent pastors and teachers. And what a joy that is, because it feels like, in 2020 especially, uh, people that I have just learned so much from and still have a lot of respect for, I find myself disagreeing with them on some things. And so what do we do when this happens? We go to the Word. We consider the inspired and the incarnate Word. We go to the Word. We rally around the Word. And this is just one of the many reasons that we as a church, we have a statement of faith. All right? And so if you haven't read our statement of faith, it's, it's on our website under what we believe. It's our statement of faith. We, we ask our members as we take them through the membership process to consider and affirm our statement of faith. These are our beliefs that we have based on what the Bible teaches, that this is what we believe the Word teaches. We don't all have to agree on everything Piper, Keller, Moeller, Dever, Calvin, Spurgeon, or Tozer has ever said. We don't have to. We consider Jesus. We consider His superiority, and we consider His superior Word. We go to the Word. That is what we rally around. That is what we have up on the pedestal and give the platform to. And we also then consider, as we consider Jesus, we want to consider his faithfulness over God's house. So we've considered our heavenly calling. We've considered his superior word. Now let's consider his house. Look back at Hebrews 3, verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let us consider the house. And we're going to do this by first considering who is God's house, who's building this house, and then if our staying in this house is conditional upon something. So first of all, who is God's house? Look at verse 6. We are his house. All right, that was good. We're moving through. We are his house. True believers, we are God's house. We are his household. Right? We've been adopted into the family of God. brothers and sisters in Christ, right? God is our Father. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We are God's household. And Paul, when he was instructing Timothy, he agrees with who this household of God is, in First Timothy 3:15. He says, "If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. Of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Peter also says yes and amen to us being the household of God. In 1 Peter 2, verse 5, he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so, who is God's house? We are his house. Now, who is the builder of the house? Verse four, Hebrews three, verse four. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Every, every house is built by someone, right? I mean, this is, this is true. If you're, if you're driving past a new addition and there's houses going up, and, uh, and but there's no sign as to who the builder is, like you don't just ask, hey, uh, who's the builder? And someone says, oh, no one. No one's the builder. No. Every house has a builder, right? Your house had a builder. At some point, it was built by someone. It did not just magically appear. Every house has a builder. And there are times when you're having a house built that you might have some questions about the builder, Right? Maybe you've had some good or bad experiences with builders or contractors. Uh, but sometimes when the house is getting built, you can question the builder's timing. Right? Like, is he, are, are they meeting the deadlines? Is this really going to be done in time when I need this house to be done? You, you also sometimes can question the builder about if they're doing everything correctly. Like, is this really being built properly? Uh, are they really giving it the close attention uh, like they would their own house? Right? I mean, there's a difference between, you know, someone that's really involved with, with wanting this house to be just, just, just the way it's supposed to be, right? Or we also maybe sometimes question the builder about whether or not they're even going to finish the work they started. Oh, we, we've had contractors in the past that have started a job and then have vanished from the face of the earth. Are they going to start, are they going to finish what they started? And church, I want, you to, I want you to look around this morning. I, gi- I give you the freedom to kind of creepily uh, just turn your head around and look around right now. We're only going to do this for a minute, so don't, don't, you know. We did not just magically appear. Th- this did not just magically happen. This was built by somebody. And it wasn't me. And it wasn't dad. And it wasn't Kevin. God is the builder of his house. And his timing is always perfect. And he does everything correctly. And he treats his house as his own because we are his household. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Consider Jesus. Consider his house. But verse six, it really brings up a question. It brings up the question in my mind of if staying in the house is conditional upon something. Because look at verse six, Hebrews three, verse six. And we are his house if. That word if makes me nervous. And we are his house if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence in our boasting, in our hope. We are his house if. It seems that there is a conditional statement here which leaves me a bit unsettled, right? Like, if we hold fast our confidence in our boasting, in our hope. Now, now hope is not just wishful thinking. Hope is a confident expectation. But, But if me staying in the household of God is conditional upon my behavior and my performance, there is not much cause for hope. I don't know about you. Maybe you guys are more confident than I am. But if me staying in the household of God is conditional upon my behavior or performance, there is not much cause for hope. And so, church, this is a topic that we will not just address once in our study of Hebrews. So if you feel like I'm not going to give it sufficient attention, attention, excuse me, that was the first one this week. Yeah, we did new batteries. David Moore, new batteries. We we're trying some things. Okay, all right. Um, but, uh, this is something we're going to have to address over and over throughout, uh, throughout Hebrews, okay? Because all throughout Hebrews, we are going to be re- repeatedly warned of falling away in unbelief. And so the, the question arises is, is, will those in the household of God persevere until the end? Or is their perseverance conditional? Like, does God kick out sons and daughters that he is adopted in? That doesn't seem right with the rest of Scripture. And so what we must understand first is that the author of Hebrews, throughout all these warning passages and throughout all these exhortations, the conditions that he seems to set up are never about someone's behavior or performance, but instead about their faith. Okay, all all throughout these warnings and these kind of seemingly conditional clauses, he's never setting it up that it's conditional upon someone's behavior or performance, but instead about their faith. And next week, we're going to see an example of the wilderness generation who did not hold fast to their faith, and they were unable to enter God's rest because of unbelief, because of unbelief. And what we'll see next week and in future chapters is the unfortunate reality that communities of faith like us, communities of faith, whether Old Testament or New Testament, oftentimes consist of both believers and unbelievers. Communities of faith often consist of the regenerate and the unregenerate. And therefore, these warnings will serve as wake up calls to the unbelievers in the congregation. But they will also serve as a sweet comfort to the believer. The Bible never says that if you do X, Y, and Z, then you get to stay in the household of God. It's never conditional upon our behavior or performance. But instead, do you believe? And if so, keep believing. It's not a matter of works. It's a matter of faith. And what we know from other passages of Scripture is that faith is not something we can muster up in our own strength. Hebrews, excuse me, Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When the Bible talks about salvation, it often talks about it in three different tenses, past, present, future, okay? And it teaches us that you have been saved by grace through faith, you are being saved by grace through faith, and you will be saved by grace through faith. It's all by God's grace. It's all by His undeserved favor. It's all a gift. Even your faith is a gift. Right, What do you have that you did not receive? Everything you have in your life is a gift. It's been given to you, even your faith. And therefore, your faith is not earning your salvation and entrance into the household of God. Your faith is evidence that you are already in. Faith is not earning your keep. Faith is the instrument that God is keeping you. And let me say that again. Faith is not earning your keep. Faith is the instrument by which God is keeping you. Your faith is not the grounds for your salvation. All right? if, if, you, if you are wanting assurance of salvation and you think back to, to when you were a child and you were in a, in a, a, at a conference and uh, the speaker was proclaiming the gospel and all your friends raised their hands because they wanted to go to heaven and you raised your hand as well, like that should not be your assurance. That that might have been a true conversion experience. It might have been. Lots of people have gotten saved in those times, but that should not be the grounds of our salvation. That's not where our assurance lies. No, it's the faith that we have right now, the one that we're still believing in right now. Your faith is not the grounds for your salvation. Christ's work is. Your faith is not the root of your salvation. Your faith is the fruit that has come forth. You were dead in your sins and unable to respond to the call of God in your life. If you have faith, that is evidence that God has done a supernatural work on your heart. I've heard it said that your dead, if your dead heart was capable of repenting and believing, you wouldn't have needed a new one. If your dead heart was capable of repenting and believing, you wouldn't have needed a new one. If Lazarus would have been capable of obeying Jesus and coming out of the tomb, he wouldn't have needed to be raised. But in fact, Lazarus was raised, and he then obeyed the command of Jesus to come. And so to you, the Spirit of God has regenerated your heart, has made you a new creation, and has given you the ability to respond in faith and repentance. Amen. And so listen, church, there is, there is hope for those in the household because God is the builder, and he finishes what he starts. And therefore, we are encouraged to keep believing. Keep showing evidence of your salvation. Keep holding fast with courage and a confident expectation of the hope that we have in Christ. But your continued faith should not be seen as earning your keep. Instead, your continued faith is the instrument by which God is keeping you. Church, consider Jesus. And consider the hope that there is for those in his household. God is the builder, and he is guarding you with the faith that he gave you. There is hope in that church. There is hope in considering Jesus. Even when all around us might seem hopeless, there is hope in Jesus. Keep believing. Keep believing. Consider Jesus. Consider his calling. Consider his superiority. Consider his house. Consider Jesus. Sometimes uh, at home, uh, the boys and I like to build uh, forts. Uh, And we have a few different things that we build forts with, uh, usually in the TV room. We've got some uh, sticks and balls that you can kind of put together and connect and make something. We've also got some tubes with screws that we can kind of screw together and connect and build something. Uh, And then once we have the the structure built, we'll drape it over uh, with a blanket or uh, a sheet or something like that, and we'll have a pretty cool fort. I feel like our forts are pretty cool. Uh, And our forts, listen, they do serve a purpose. They do. I mean, they provide us fun, right? It's, just, it's enjoyable to do it. Uh, they provide us good fellowship and community with one another. We're building relationships with one another as we're building this fort. Uh, the fort has a lot of purposes. Sometimes the fort serves as safety from Joel. Uh, Joel has been in a, a season of punching uh, that's lasted about two years, most of his life. It's been a long season. But sometimes you just—it serves that purpose of protection, right? And uh, I truly believe that that building a simple fort, it is fulfilling some of my responsibilities as a father. Now, not not all of them, but but some of them, right? I'm spending time with my boys. We're learning. We're we're enjoying one another. But the fort is is temporary, right? I mean, we maybe leave the fort up for a couple of days. Uh, but then we tear them down and we build something new. Church, when I go to bed, I don't lose sleep over the fort. I, I, I'm not staying up at night wondering if it's going to still be standing the next day when I wake up. Uh, I, I, don't, uh, I don't, you know, through the night just pace anxiously wondering what's going to happen to the fort. Now, I do do that sometimes about our house. Right? And, and, and our house encompasses the fort. Our, our house, like during a windstorm or something, I mean, I'm concerned if, if shingles are gonna be blowing off the roof. I'm concerned if the power is gonna go out of the house. I'm concerned if the siding's gonna be damaged. Right? Our, our house is the thing that I'm, I'm hoping will last a long time. Our, our house is the thing that actually has value in that scenario. I'd love to leave my kids a cool fort, but the house is ultimately what I want to leave my kids and my family when I die. Now, don't get me wrong, church. I love our fort. I pray for our fort. I pay taxes for our fort. I think our fort is better than any other fort out there. And I think God has used it and will use it for his good purposes. I have convictions about our fort and my personal responsibility to it. I want to make it a better fort. I want to help it bring more glory to God. But holy brothers and sisters, you who have been set apart to a heavenly calling, Can you not come with me up to the lookout and consider Jesus and see that you are a part of something way more glorious than the fort? You are a part of the household of God, and that is what will last for eternity. That is what has value. That is what is being built by God. Don't get me wrong. I would love a good fort, but I'm not going to lose sleep over a fort tonight. Because that's not what I'm holding fast to. And that's not what my confidence is in. And that's not what my hope is set upon. And so us as set apart brothers and sisters, we must consider Jesus. This week, we must consider Jesus. We must consider his calling. We must consider his superior word. We must consider his household. And so I'd encourage you to take time this week to pause and just consider how glorious he is. Don't miss out on the beauty and the glory that surrounds us. May we keep holding fast to him. Let's pray.